Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of New Books Network Podcast. My name is Dr. Lee Pierce. You can call me Lee. She, they pronouns. I am the host of the channels in language and communication, and you can connect with me on social media and Gmail at rhetorically. I'm very excited today to have Dr. Corey Anton here discussing his new book, How Non-Being Haunts Being which is a look at uh, human life as an open expanse of what was and what will be, what might be and what should be. It's about uh, desires, dreams, fiction, historical figures, planned events, spatial and temporal distances, and in a word, absent presences and present absences that configure how we think of what it means to exist. Uh, a lot of heady theory happening here uh, integrates thinkers like Sartre, Henry Bergson, sorry, Henri Bergson, I always pronounce that name wrong, Kenneth Burke, Terence Deacon, Lynn Margellis, uh, and on and on and on. I'm very excited to discuss issues such as moral possibilities for liberation, death acceptance, and just a general conversation about how living beings who are of space not merely in the world, but are fundamentally on loan to themselves and the world. And so with that very, I'm sure, easy to access introduction to the book, I'll welcome Dr. Corey Anton, professor of communication studies at Grand Valley State University and host of one of my favorite YouTube channels, aptly named Corey Anton, to the podcast. Corey, how are you? How are things? Whoa, um, yeah. Thank you. Of course. Quite, quite the intro. Oh, we thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That debate experience. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's good stuff. That's good so stuff. So tell us about yourself, the book, how it came to be. And obviously, I have lots of questions about, um, yeah. but I'd just love to know your thoughts on it and 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 where you are thinking about it now, well, too, because this well, book's like, a couple yeah, of years. Know, I, I want to thank you so much for having me on here. I really appreciate doing this. And I guess, to, you know, put the book in context, in some way, it goes all the way back to, you know, being a 12-year Catholic school kid who refused confirmation because but, I didn't, I, you know, I, I just couldn't accept the notion that there was, there was life after death. And I, so, you know, it goes all the way back in some way to high school, but it, it is, it's the third book in a trilogy with the first book being my dissertation called Selfhood and Authenticity. And then I was on a second sabbatical where I wrote a book called Sources of Significance. Mm-hmm. And this is the most recent one from a very recent sabbatical uh, taken in the winter of 2018. And, you know, I think as much as it sounds like it's heady and talking about, you know, these very abstract notions, in some ways, I'm talking about stuff that's so obvious and so close to home that it remains elusive. You know, just as an example, this morning, I had to run some errands, I was doing some shopping, and I thought for a moment, again, I was having the thought, what if I'm late for this uh, session today? Like, what if I miss the session? Hmm. And the thought about the possibility of it not happening, that's part of our human world. Our human world, you see, I think sometimes people do something like it's always just the now, but the now always has to make room for more than itself. Mm. That it, it includes the no longer and the not yet. And that's part of our experience. You know, if you, if you ask people, is time real? I think they say, yes, mm. time is real. If you say, is thought real? Again, I think people say, yes, it is. But if you say, is nothing real or is non-being real, they'll say, no, there's no such thing. Uh, You can't have time or thought without non-being. Yes, absolutely. And and interestingly enough, it's actually the book's – it's actually the book's adjective to describe the work as, quote, heady and multidisciplinary. But I found it really accessible. I mean, you use lots of examples and many are – 
very endemic. You know, you use sports. You, like you said, you just use that one about just basically running errands. So I guess yeah. I borrowed Hetty from the website, but even though it's um, – it's certainly rigorous. I don't think it's inaccessible. So heady can maybe be a word that might have negative connotations that I hadn't yeah, thought about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. I think I do think it's a it's an accessible piece. I, yeah. I think it's a, it's clearly it's an academic work, but it is it's trying to be designed for the widest possible audience. And you know, I think in some way it's trying to really challenge what common sense would suggest about us. It, the, the way that we think about the world, the way that we think about ourselves and language, it, it tends to be very trivial and um, o- oversimplified. And mm. I, p- part of the task is to rigorously show that there's no escape from the non-being problem. And as I say, in, in some way, it's so obvious, right? We live in a world that partly includes what was and what will be. Mm. And it's it's just that simple, really. Yeah. And the cent- so just to kind of help the readers p- situate themselves in your argument, the central purpose of the book, you basically summarize as two statements, which I was amazing. You were like, yeah, this whole thing boils down to basically two arguments. The first one is obviously that non-being haunts being. And then a secondary claim that non-being brings possibilities and moral agency. And you also assert, um, and this is your quote, that for too long, people have ignored, underestimated, or even denied how non-being undergirds life, especially human life. And you use uh, Monty Python, right? The the movie Life of Brian, the satire, to illustrate the central argument. You say, you use this quote from from the movie. Here, criminals and the wrongly accused are being crucified, but still look on the bright side of life, reminding the audience, you started with nothing and you end with nothing. What have you lost? Nothing. So- you, you pose the question, you give a very accessible example, and I think this repeats itself throughout. So do you want to unpack that basic premise with the Monty Python example as like our sure, starting point? Sure, sure. Let me say something about that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of my favorite movies, you know, <laughs> sort of a classic. You know, if you haven't seen it, you really need to see it. Um, I think that, you know, Life of Brian, it it's it's a satire about – you know, the, the ways that life, you know, sort of happens to us in some ways and, and people put us on pedestals or, you know, we, with, it's all these kind of like crazy escapades that are going on with us. But I think the, the point in the, at the end of the movie is that it's the message of gratitude. Mm. It's that even if you're not the savior, you're not the person who is going to have something like ultimate salvation, there is there's a deep, profound gratitude that comes from the unconditional acceptance of life, mm. which includes death. See, I think f- from my perspective, there are so many people who call themselves Christians who, if you ask them, could you forgive God if you suddenly discovered there were no life after death? Many of them say they couldn't. Right. I mean, when, I was do- when, when I was working on my 2010 book, there really was, you know, so many people, there were so many people who had said to me just point blank, I could never forgive. I would rather be an atheist than try to believe in a God who couldn't ensure life after death. And so in some way, I think for a lot of people, the they can really only accept life if it has a promise of some sort of salvation after it. And for me, this is basically a lack of gratitude. I mean, I think the the life of Brian is a message of acceptance and gratitude. I mean, who do people think they are? Mm. They, you know, like you've known love, you've known the 
again, forms of intimacy. You've been, you know, probably laughed to amazing uh, forms of, you know, comedic art. You've cried to music. We've had all of these experiences. And yet what should be the price for it? I, I think people, they've lost touch with what it means to really be human and to have gratitude for being at all and what we're able to experience. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it is the book is really kind of just trying to resituate the tension that all being is non-being and all non-being is being. And, and one of the things, in fact, you say, I think in the beginning of the book that was important uh, for me and especially for people who maybe are intimidated by the depth and breadth of philosophy and theories of language that you encompass in this book, you actually make it you kind of sort of summarize them well as a as a starting point for your project you say uh philosophers traditionally have ruminated over the question why is there something rather than nothing and then in doing so you suggest it's an either or approach right where a where really what we need is a both and strategy and so you ask why must the situation be framed as something rather than nothing or nothing rather than something so how is your book challenging some of those more traditional philosophical ruminations? Yeah. So again, I, it's not really a cosmological, I'm not engaged in a cosmological speculation about right. this, this question of why is there something rather than nothing? That's an interesting question. I would be more interested in the question, not of why is there something rather than nothing, but why is part of the something that is partly aware of the fact that it is and how is awareness funded by forms of absence hmm. and incompleteness? Uh, when I say that it's it's a both and rather than an either or, yeah, it's th the point is that it's not as if being and non-being are on par with one another. It's not as if they're equals or opposites. No, non-being is parasitical upon being, and it's it's haunting being. That is, it's incorporated and it's on the other side, like invisibly as a a counterpoint. And um, uh, it's it's partly what makes the being of beings what they are, right? Right. I mean, again, it's it has to do with thought, right? I, I think in some ways it's a very simple argument that thought is a kind of time that inherently deals with possibilities. Now it sounds so abstract, but the more you actually look at thought and you try to really study it, you'll notice it that a thought that is only dealing with actuality wouldn't be a thought at all. Thought is the ability to consider the path not taken. So again, when we're talking about moral agency being ushered in with the possibilities that come from non-being, if I were like strapped on a roller coaster and unable to, to make any move out of the moves that I were in, like again, a ping pong ball on water, I wouldn't have any agency. I wouldn't have any sense of, of uh, morality. It's because I can entertain options meaning selecting one and not selecting the other ones. Right. Yeah. You and know, I, I think, think if I could just say this, I mean, I think in, in some way, oh, the ahead. philosophical traditions that I'm trying to tackle here, it's, there's two kinds of, so there's two different sets of arguments. One set is that there's like two kinds of dogma I'm arguing against. One would be like religious dogma that tells you that you have this superlative sense of free will and it comes from God because all of reality here is just a test for the afterlife. And that's what this is all like sort of a dress rehearsal for the real show. Again, mm. eternity or something like this. Mm -hmm. Other people sort of like reductive scientific naturalists, they say, well, no, there's no such thing as agency. Or if there is agency, it's epiphenomenal. It's illusory. There's really 
like hard determinism all the way down. And I'm suggesting, no, there is a middle space. We can talk about emergent forms of agency that come from the body, has to do with the body's sensory capacities. Mm -hmm. So that's one whole area where I'm trying to eke out this space of, again, a kind of robust spirituality amidst death acceptance by fending off both those forms of dogma. In a different way, what I'm trying to do is is radically critique and undercut the classic subject-object split. That is, people have a tendency to think the world is over there and I'm over here and I'm somehow not the world. And then I'm just like with a squishy kind of machinery Hmm. representing the world as if my only possible relation to the world is one of representation. And it's it's in assaulting, again, the, the representationalism that I think is a radical oversimplification in a lot of theorizing today and also trying to recover how the subject-object split is, again, is distorting our basic understanding of both the world and ourselves. You know, the, the world can't be itself, can't show some of its most beautiful features without our help, and we can't be ourselves without the world and without other people. Yeah, and you mentioned the body here, and this is really the the subject of chapter two because you talk about how the body, and you provide, I mean, again, like the, the depth of example, the breadth of examples is incredibly helpful because they're really... I mean, it's so persuasive in the sense that you really see how this argument pervades everyday activities and larger questions about like ethics and climate change and things like that. So you suggest that the body itself is marked by what you call modes of absence, incompleteness and non-being, and that as a a network of different sensory capacities, which kind of like what you were talking about, it provides a foundational ground for agency and possibilities. So could you maybe walk us through one or two examples from this chapter that you think are really illuminating? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, in some way, as I say, this is just so obvious that it's elusive. It's like the nose on your face that you can't see because it's too close. Mm. But just the fact of metabolism and the fact that we have hungers and the need for food, you know, we're incomplete beings. We're sort of like walking straws. You know, there's a hole on the top and a hole on the bottom and we're we're moving (laughs) through like an alimentary canal. We're moving through the river of life and there's sort of openness. And it's not just, again, these sort of obvious examples of the fact that we need food in order to stay alive, but it's also, we have longings for senses of completeness. That is, I'm able to relate to my own not yet, that, that, that ultimate not yet of my own death. And that somehow is able to render life as a whole, right? That death, as I'm talking about it in the book, I'm not really so much talking about death of the deathbed, like is the factical death of the body, so much as death as a meaning horizon that is the condition uh, for life's meaningfulness at all. There's, you know, death is like a picture frame. With, without death, you could always just do anything later. But awareness of death is a grounding principle that makes life meaningful. Um, see, I think some of this too, it's important for people to understand the sort of big history that I'm trying to do at, at some of the parts of the book. I don't think m- most people understand what was called the eukaryote invasion. That is, I think most of us, when we look around at the world, we see something like organisms being born and then organisms in some way growing, aging, reproducing, and then dying. And we've come to all think that life 
equals like death and sex and like sex and death are just an integral part of life. And if you take like evolutionary theory, you know, modern evolutionary theory, looking at Darwin, it's largely focused on the kind of evolution that comes with modification through descent. So Mm. there's genetic material that's passed on uh, to offspring. But for the first billion, that's with a B, first billion years of life on this planet, there there was no sex and there really was no death as we know it. I mean, death as we know it, that is an ontogeny of a lifespan of programmed death built into the organism that comes with the eukaryote invasion, which was basically the the symbiotic relationships which made multicellularity possible, Mm. right? Uh, And like sex, the origin of sex, and this is laid out just beautifully by Lynn Margulis and Dorian Sagan in a lot of their works, but, you know, sex really began as a form of abortive cannibalism. Uh, One organism tried to devour the other and then spit it out and tried to devour, spit it out. And after, you know, so many generations of trying that, it called it a truce and it became, again, the basis of, uh, you know, what we call reproductive sex. Um, You know... Genetic material, as we understand, again, we think of DNA and DNA being passed on to offspring, but for earliest forms of life, for microbes, for uh, bacteria, for, again, uh, protists, they had like RNA ciliates on their skin and they they would exchange genetic information partly by just bumping into one another. And now... I want to be somewhat cautious on this. It's not to say that death wasn't part of the earliest part of life. An, an organism could be nutrient deprived. It could be desiccated. It could potentially be consumed by a neighbor. But there wasn't, again, a built-in death by necessity. There's just growth and division. And although that's ancient, that's still part of our bodies. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, they're constructs, right? I mean, you could you can think of it as death, or you could continue to think of it as growth and division. Which I think it's kind of your argument that that you can yeah, death acceptance requires a different instead yeah, of an it's end, happening right? At, at yeah. very different levels. That's right. I think the last thing I would say too about the body, and this is again such an for me, it's such an important point. It's that we, in the same way that we need hung, we need food. We have hungers for. In, in, again, the food actually keeps us alive. I mean, this is part of who we are is we are what we eat. I mean, there's literally, I grew my body from ingesting parts of the environment. And I, I dispose other parts and we, we, we draw those lines, but it's the important part is dreamless sleep that every night we do need to have and undergo the ultimate erasure of consciousness itself. So the non-being of consciousness is part of my being. And, you know, when I say that non-being haunts being, I mean that every day, every one of us, we give up on all cares and momentarily recess into the vegetative mm-hmm. every day. Yeah, you did something really uh, excellent in this chapter, too, I think, with like senses and sight and horizon and, and just the way that you're and again, this is obviously like depends on your hearing and your sight abilities. But actually, I was having breakfast with my grandfather this morning, who's like 92, and he's can barely hear and he's very hunched over. And I was thinking of this sentence from the book. Um, you say one's body, the clearing that makes room for the world is caught by absences on all fronts. The horizon line of vision recedes off into something one cannot fully see. And the limits of one's hearing make it so that some things are too far away or too quiet for one to register. And when you're in an, an able body, you do take those things for granted by how much absence is all around you all the time and what you can't see, what can't hear. And I was thinking about my grandfather, like stooped over, can't see me speaking, can't hear me speaking. 
Yeah. And it was like, wow, right. You really do. You really don't think about how much your sensory capacities are so limited by absence and, and not even limited, but also enabled. Because if you don't have absence, yeah. you don't have presence, right? Yeah, it was really, yeah, right, really right, trippy right. morning for me. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is funny that, you know, the body is, it's the way the world worlds. That is, the world has a particular spatial temporal horizon that's unified. I mean, the brain unifies the different profiles that are coming from the different sensory capacities. But the space-time of the ear and the space-time of the eye and the space-time of the hand are actually quite different. I mean, the more that mm. we like engage in a phenomenological analysis of the differences, they're, they're very, very different. You know, Helen Keller later in life, when she was asked if she could have either sense back, mm. which would she choose? And she said, I would choose hearing. And it just left people just absolutely astonished. And they said, oh, she would rather be blind. And when you start to think about the differences, yeah, the eye opens you to the lifeless, to the inert, to the dead, mm. to the just what's distant and sitting still, whereas the ear only opens you to the eventfulness of life, to the action of life. You know, life life as it's in its wiggly activity and, <laughs> and the, its dynamic uh, aspects, that's all you can really pick up with your with your hearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's true. I, I actually heard that quote. I guess I never really knew the justification for it, but that makes sense. Um, so oh, it's, it's, it's quite fascinating. So really. how does the how does this argument about the body then get to the second claim of the book, which is this idea that it brings possibilities and moral agency? Well, I guess there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of ways in which this is going on, but it's you know that our bodies are able to see horizons that then hands actualize certain possibilities from the possibilities that are, that are sort of manifest in the field. And this is, you know, sports would be the most clear example of that, whether you're throwing a dart at a board or you're trying to chip a, uh, a golf ball somewhere or throwing a, a basketball, you see lots of places where you could throw it, where you could hit it, but the sense of touch is again trying to actualize one of those. Now, and a lot of it has to do, I guess, with the body's capacities to speak, though. So it's it's not just the sensory capacities; it's those capacities get then radically made over with the acquisition of language. You know, language provides this kind of infrastructure mm. for. And managing the intelligibility of possibilities that are sort of displayed uh, through the different sensory capacities. And in particular, you know, it's the word don't and the word thou shalt, you know, the expression thou shalt not, yeah. or the expression no, you know, th through this flurry, this, this, again, this flurry of, of thou shalt nots and don'ts, we get exposed to a kind of inwardness that allows us to deliberate over possibilities, right? So, you know, more a child who's never heard don't or no never really becomes what we would call a moral agent. Mm. You know, the moral agent is the exercising the capacity to say yes or no to any of the thou shalt nots. You know, a different way to say it is this, you know, so say I'm standing somewhere and I'm at a cocktail party and there, and again, it's a very simple example, but I'm at a cocktail party and I look out and I see a dog and the dog's tail is wagging back and forth around a glass of wine. I might see that and I might think to myself, you know, that dog might hit 
that glass of wine. I go and I grab the wine and I move it up out of the dog's tail. Now, you don't ever see the dog, you know, not hitting the glass, but because we're able to move with regard to things in a preventative way, we're able to prevent things from happening. And so the whole realm of preventive measures really well illustrates how possibilities, especially moral possibilities, uh, come in through non-being. You know, think of, you know, just a very simple example. Think of contraception. Mm. You know, contraception couldn't be a clearer case of applied practical implication of non-being, that is, of not getting pregnant, of, of preventing something from happening. And it's a huge moral weight there. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a massive moral weight of bringing a life in or not. Yeah, I mean, it's it, well, and then also, right, that gets us into this idea of language, of language, which is actually chapter three. So language is kind of the grid that gets imposed on all of these. Otherwise, what would just be growth and division, we label them, we divide them, we binarize them. And so in this chapter, you're, you're really interested in what you called the way that um, language and communication at different levels are infused with negativity. Not in a bad way, just the concept of the oh, negative right. absent of a judgment. Right. So what's your argument here um, that's different from chapter two or expands on it? And what are some examples that you think help process well, it? Well, yeah, again, the, I, I do think the chapter three is probably the most, um, you know, nitpicky and or tweezersy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's getting out the, the fine tooth comb and going at all. All of the different layers and levels that non-being is occurring, again, absence and incompleteness, rather than just the word don't or the word no or the expression thou shalt not. But it's looking at a lot of different ways that, again, negation and absence are playing. And, And so some of it, we need to deal with the evolutionary precursors, and that would be mammalian play and dreams. Mm. So dreams are a kind of symbolism that they're welling from the individual subconscious, some way from the collective unconscious. But the dreams are, they're a form of symbolism such that they're actualizing certain possibilities. That is the dream symbolism are, you know, there are possible dreams that could be generated. These are the ones that get generated. And they're somehow about something that they themselves are not. No matter how true a dream could be, when I wake up from the dream and say, oh, wow, I realized that was just a dream. That is what I thought was real, wasn't real, but it needs to be understood as like a kind of reality, but it was a dream. It wasn't what I thought it was. So again, there's something occurring. There is like, there is a, a being there. There's, a, there's an organism that's asleep and there's chemical processes, neuro, neurophysical processes going on. But the, the dream is about something other than what itself is. And we were able to become aware of that. I think one of the things that's most fascinating about dreams is that night by night, we're not only wholly like deceived, but we're the deceiver, like we're Hmm. self-deceiving and the deceived. So, I mean, that like, that's one, again, major, major, uh, like evolutionary precursor to what we mean by language, because language in some way is like a waking dream. When you learn another's language, you learn how to enter into their, the dream that is their waking life, right? Uh, play is also a wonderful uh, example of how non-being haunts being. And, you know, Gregory Bateson does wonderful work on this, where he's talking about just watching mammals uh, you know, he was looking at monkeys, but also otters, you know, other, other mammals. They're able to give metacommunicative framing to suggest that 
the actions that they're engaged in are not what they appear. So the nip, it means the bite, but doesn't mean what a bite would mean. Mm-hmm. And this is what the, the example that Bateson gives. We could think about it as when people are on a stage, like when we're an actual play, like a theater play. When we're on a, when we're at the stage, we see people on the stage and they're doing things, but they're not exactly what they appear. That is, the people who are on stage who are giving a kiss to one another, that staged kiss, it means a kiss, but doesn't mean what a kiss would mean. Right. And so we're going to need to deal with the layers of non-being, haunting being, in order to understand anything like a fiction or a movie or a play. You know, m- Most people end up consuming thousands and thousands of hours of fiction and yet, if they really ask themselves, you know, what does it mean to watch Star Trek? You know, you're going to you know, watch some, you know, science fiction or whatever. There's just layers and layers of non-being even in there. You know, we're watching Star Trek and they're having a holodeck, you know, where the characters are not even being themselves. But these are just actors and actresses playing aliens who are now playing someone else on a holodeck. I mean, it's just so many layered. Uh, it's the same thing with even language, though. I mean, as I'm speaking right now, the words that are occurring are occurring in what amounts to be like a moment of now. And yet I don't hear this, the noisiness of the words as if it were a foreign language. Right. You know, when you, when you turn on the radio and you, you hit a, a station that has a foreign broadcast, you can just hear one sound after the other and it's is quickly appearing as it is vanishing. And you can't differentiate when one word begins and another word ends but as we're listening to our native tongue, the sounds as sounds disappear and they become a meaning horizon. That is, we're able to entertain what is absent by the present sounds. Mm. And so even though the words I'm saying are always occurring in a moment of now, the words by their meaning horizon are how we get out of the now. I can ask you, what did you do yesterday? What are you doing this weekend? You know, Do you have any plans for this summer? And in all those ways, even though we're just animals gesticulating and chattering noises right now, we're in this expanse of the was, the will be, the not yet, the no longer. Again, we can talk about all those things. And they're part of part of our world. And it's not just that when we say they're part of our world, it's not just that that's the human world. No, that is the world. Humans are natural. We're part mm-hmm. of nature. Yeah. Well, and, and language in some ways is part of nature. It's yes. also not part of nature, but you certainly can't pick a side on, on that issue, right? Well, I mean, it's – okay, let's let's get at this. See, this, this again, this is a, a one I dealt with at length in my first book on uh, the self and authenticity. Mm-hmm. People, they, they learn at a certain point that language has to be learned. That is, a child raised in isolation doesn't spontaneously speak any language at all. Right. And we've learned that in order to acquire a mother tongue, you don't need formal instruction, but you need to be around people who are speaking and you spontaneously sort of pick up you know, certain phonemes drop out of the repertoire and you, again, you acquire a mother tongue and this kind of stuff. But what's fascinating about this is it doesn't mean that language isn't natural. It means we're naturally social. Right. Yeah. Just because language is learned from others, again, it, it, it gives problem to the self other split. It in no way shows that language isn't natural. Yeah. No, it's just that we're naturally social. Have you seen the, the Coen brothers movie, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs? 
I haven't. Okay, I'll send you. There's a vignette called The Meal Ticket, and it's bizarre. I watched it three times, and everything about this chapter made me think of that vignette. So hmm. I won't describe it because it's it's got a person who's missing multiple limbs, and it's it's kind of dark. I don't want to just dump that on anyone, but it's it's the it's called The Meal Ticket, and it's got Liam Neeson in it. So I'll have hmm. to send you the a reminder it. to just watch it. It's only a couple minutes long because the movie is just a bunch of short vignettes. Okay. But it yeah, really, great. I mean, it really was an interesting case study where I, was, I kept thinking about this chapter a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's an important thing. And especially as communication scholars, one of the things people always want us to do is like make communication more effective or clearer or less less gappy. Or I mean, they want it to, to essentially just be a one-to-one. I want to to express this, make give me words to perfectly express it without any contingency. And you're just like, yeah, I don't have that for you. Yeah. Like I can't <laughs> like I can't. I'm not a communications and marketing like I like like it's it's filled with absence and presence and mistakes yeah. and misfires and it's a natural system in some ways and you can't control it no matter how much you want to say the perfect word for every moment and never have any fallout. Right, right. I mean, you know, in in linguistics, it's sometimes, and again, this is a little tweezery. You know, it's sometimes called the paradigmatic access. Uh-huh, yeah. That you know, when we're using language, we have to be able to imagine alternative words that could have been used. I mean, that's how translation is possible. Like if somebody's saying something to you, and then you say, "Did you understand?" and they say it back to you in the exact same words, you're not really sure if they're just parroting. Whereas right. if they say it back with substituted words, but you're able to recognize the same meaning behind that, you say they understood. So there is a sense in which even our everyday present language is haunted by this underbelly of possible substitutable words that could have been employed. Or even like if you take grammatical moods, even if you're going to specify something by giving a declarative statement about something, you have to delimit and specify. So yeah, there's always going to be a kind of non-being haunting because basically when we're talking about non-being really I mean, most simply said we're talking about thought that's what thought is mm-hmm. thought is a kind of time that inherently deals with possibilities mm-hmm. yeah my my first book is largely dedicated to grammatical moods to grammatical moods yeah. yes i will i will send it to you, you when know. it's done <laughs> yeah, no i think that's good i mean i think that the the big the big game in the sites as it were in this is to try to move toward how all of these different possibilities then culminate into property rights mm. and what kenneth burke calls the secret sacred sign of negativity mm-hmm. which is that once you're an adult in modern western cultures you realize that everything has an invisible mark on it, which is mine or thine, which means no trespassing. And this whole sense of the world itself has already been, again, sort of divided up by by ownership, which ownership is a kind of negativity. Mm-hmm. It means this is not yours, it's mine. <laughs> yeah, I and mean, it puts boundaries... So you're tr- in some ways you're almost like redistricting the with my thought about language, right? Because uh, you, we are so seeped in this idea of ownership, and and even people are copywriting phrases now, so you can own a phrase, and other people yeah. can't use that phrase in com- commercial speech, and it, it's very different than the way you want us to think about it, which is a lot of enmeshment, a lot of um, 
like absence haunting presence, a lot of layers, not not so much separation and like you said, but growth and division, right? Yeah, and, and again, you know, I, I to be true to my arguments, I, I don't want to suggest that private property is somehow not natural. I mean, that's not the argument. I mean, right. the problem is that the word natural gets used in different senses. Yeah, in one sense, true. we use it sort of, you know, as a like a pejorative and in a normative sense. Whereas I'm just saying, like, th- there's a fact that. Everything that is is part of nature. Well, you know, if you, if you ask, does nature do art? Does nature do mathematics? Many people say no. Well, no. Humans are that part of nature that does all that. And so, yeah, we're that part of nature that has private property. Uh, but I think we can also then ask questions about, you know, what is it when we're really on loan to ourselves to have multi generational private property and to sort of just talk about it? I mean, in some way, yeah. it's just to largely open the discussion about, you know, what are the moral possibilities that come with recognizing one's own death and one's indebtedness to others. And then the question again about private property, I think starts to loom quite large and it's going to loom larger and larger as more and more parts of the globe are uninhabitable due to climate change. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to raise questions of, you know, should there be more respect for commons? And, you know, that some of those questions I don't address in the book is so much try to lay some of the framework that would be needed to talk, hopefully intelligently about that stuff. Yeah. And one of the conditions of that, it seems to be, is going to be uh, this term death acceptance that you use. So like, so you essentially ask in the chapter four, um, how death acceptance, which is the denial of any personal life postmortem, can invigorate ethical possibilities and motivate certain forms of social justice. So can you tell people more about what death acceptance is on your view and how you see yeah. it sort of culminating some of the conversations you've had in the book so far? Sure, sure. I mean, I I don't think that people are saying literally to themselves, let's not worry about prison reform and let's not worry about the poor and let's not worry about you know, social inequality because God's going to fix it all in the end and there is going to be ultimate justice. But I think that's partly there in the backdrop of many people's thought mm-hmm. that if many, if, if all of us could just suddenly give up any belief that there are some people who are saved and other people who aren't, and we would just all, and again, I'm not trying to be dogmatic. I don't know if there's life after death. My guess is that there isn't. And mm-hmm. my guess is that, again, we die. That doesn't mean that life is somehow meaningless or that everyone's going to run around and be individualist stab and grab. No, I see no evidence for that. I think part of it is how people understand themselves. If they understand themselves as on loan to themselves from a cosmos, if they understand how indebted they are to others, how much parts of themselves couldn't come into being without others, I think you know th- there are ways to to get at you know the, the kind of self understanding that 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 needs to be there, um, but I think there's there's so many ways uh, where people try to you know just very simply make the world a better place mm-hmm. you know in, in very humble ways you know let's try it this way you know Prince and David Bowie both recently died and when you ask about you know what were their lives well. It's, it's fascinating because we're here talking about them. Now, they're absent from the world, and yet they're still somehow present, like they're haunting it. And not only is it some sense of the music there uh, that we can still listen to, so there's, there's that dynamic, but there's social influence that they've had with various statements they've made, with various uh, people whose lives they've impacted. Maybe those some of those people are still alive. And I guess when you start to look at our lives – we can start to ask questions about, you know, 
what would be an intelligible response, a sort of fitting response to knowing that one will die? Mm. You know, I, I'm here in an area that has a good number of people who believe in the Calvinist faith. I don't know how much you know about Calvinism, but I mean, there are people who actually believe that they were predestined. Mm -hmm. They were before they were born, they were predestined for salvation and that their monetary wealth, that is how much money they have, is some show of God in this world of their predestination. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really for my money, it's just very suspicious. <laughs> I think it's problematic. Well, and very much entangled with capitalism, and yes. and, and you see the motivations, f f what you would think would be Christian motivations, and what you would think would be profit motivations, enmeshing in ways that don't seem to lend oh. themselves to ethics, right? Oh, for sure. And I mean, this is one of the the our, you know the odd parts of the Bible is that the thou shalt nots come up to sanctioning as if by God private property. Right. Right. And now people having built their life around that with, instead of going, I'm going to claim this for myself, they say, well, God gave me the right to do this. At that point, you know, when the Bible sanctions private property, I think there's a buildup of guilt. And then we, there's a lot of like struggle with adequate senses of social justice because the whole system is all confused. It's all mangled. Yeah. And, and property rights. I mean, this is something I'm sure that you deal with where you are, but in New York, where most of the quote unquote private property we have is is stolen or, un, or um, unfairly taken through exactly. treaties from first peoples, the idea of private property that's quote unquote guaranteed by the constitution. Well, that was written over by constitutions that were here before. So like talk about non-being haunting being, I mean, talk about property haunting property. Oh, it's it's so tragic. I mean, the colonization yeah. of the Americas, the hundreds of millions of people were were executed, and one of the ways that they removed people from their land was taxes. Mm -hmm. Basically, they said, "Oh yeah, you can keep your land, but now there's property taxes, and in order to pay for that that property tax, you're going to have to pay in money." So there was a, a levering system mm -hmm. that moved people out of any indigenous relationship they had with the earth. I, I do think in some ways, you know, the book is trying to recover something more akin to whether one wants to see it as like a, a Buddhism or a, a paganism or something mm -hmm. more a, akin to connections to the earth and sort of reverence for the sort of miraculous majesty of all the beauty around us and, and how we relate to that. Yeah, there's a really good book. I'll have to. Uh, I did an interview a couple of months ago, and it basically studies uh, Christian catastrophe rhetorics. And the argument that the book made is that the this um, the impending doom of climate crisis is not a motivator for certain sects of fundamentalist Christians, evangelicals mostly, to oh. take action in the way that that you know some of us would want, because this is what they've always waited for. That's right. It's really That's fascinating. Right. I mean, thinking about yeah. how the, the, our what we think of as persuasive actually is not persuasive because of the way that some of those belief systems are set up to want the destruction. I think that that's really right. I mean, Lee, I think that's so right. And I think part, part of the dynamic here would be 
that when people talk about being in this ultimate philosophical sense, it immediately goes to something like the eternality of what is rather than what isn't eternal. And right. it becomes God. Right. And then God gets aligned with this kind of nature that can't be harmed and can't be hurt. And there's, a, you know, we could talk about senses in which, you know, will the world and will, you know, life go on after humans have destroyed themselves? Oh, yes, indeed. For, for millions of years yet. Yes. Uh, but I, I don't think, though, that we want to, you know, humanity is an amazing evolutionary achievement. I think it's really tragic that we're going to end up destroying ourselves. But we, we, you know, very well likely, maybe. Well, it gets back to what you said in the beginning. I mean, there's a kind of gratitude for the fact that you've listened to. I mean, I think all the time of all the times I could have been alive, I got to be alive for David Bowie, right? I got to be alive for the golden age of television. I got to be alive Ooh. for pop. <laughs> and why wouldn't you want that to continue for the people coming after you? Why Why isn't that important to you? And of course, it's because my belief system is very different than than other belief systems. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that so many people have, they've really trivialized what who they are and what they are. I think they think that there's a shrimpy little sack of skin that other people can identify that we can weigh right. we and put on a scale. And uh, they're just representing the world. You know, so much of this is indebted to Douglas Harding. I feel obligated to at least say something about Harding's work. You know, his book on having no head was really influential. I mean, mm. it goes all the way back to my first book. I'm somewhat talking about the headless way all the way back there. But I mean, the headless way, I think, is something that if people haven't ever heard of, they really should learn about, you know, he, he was in the Himalayan mountains when he was a young man and he discovered that he had no head and it was the greatest discovery of his life. Like he realized that where his head wasn't, the world was being made room for. And to, to realize that we're headless, you know, to, to sort of get at in a deep way, the way the world worlds through our own headlessness, it's to recover a self worth having. Mm -hmm. You realize that some of your greatest riches aren't personal possessions. Right. Like, you know, you are the sunset, you are the rainbow. You know, I think we think there are rainbows just in the sky, whether people looking at them or not, or we imagine that the sun sets, whether people are looking at it. No, the sun is always setting and rising simultaneously. It's because we have bodies that have frontwards that we can face the West. And at a certain time, we can make the sun appear to set but the setting sun, that's us. That is the, the setting, the setting of the sun is it comes from the way the world has made a purchase upon itself through our bodies. Yeah. Well, and it gets it. This is something kind of that brings us to the conclusion of the book where you talk about, um, I, you, you call it an imaginative exercise about the possible origins of all that is, or also called the possible ontological ground for nothing, which is really fascinating. Um, so you could, just because I don't want to take up our listeners' time too much, could you tell sure. us how you see yourself bringing these questions to a close and then what new questions arise out of the conclusion that maybe you're pursuing in future projects? Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, in some way, you know, in the same way that I, I felt obligated to invoke Harding, I would also say, you know, I, I need to invoke and, and sort of tip a hat as it were to Alan Watts. Mm. I mean, Alan Watts was very influential on me, especially when I was younger. Uh, and all the books that his, his son Mark has released in recent years have also been very interesting. But, you know, Watts tells what he calls cosmic hide and seek, the story of cosmic hide and seek, where the one somewhat 
it, it cries out, you know, I'm lonely, and then it divides in half, and then both sides say, now I'm bored, and then one side turns black, and the other side turns white, and it, the, the impulse and the division is so exciting, exuberating, and one side says, what is this? The other side says, who is that? And it blows into all the divisions, the separations of self and other, and heaven and earth, and all the different animals, and everything mm-hmm. that is, and it's all the one hide, playing hide-and-seek on itself to avoid being near the border lonely. And I, I like his story. I think there's something very, you know, very fitting about it, but it ends up with, it doesn't really make sense. Mm. I mean, it's a, again, it's a, it's a wonderful story, but the more you think about it, if the, there really were a one, as it were, an all, an all encompassing one, well, it wouldn't have no sense of either loneliness or boredom. And in fact, it's like a paradox that is in order to have a figure, you have to have a ground. And so, you know, th- this one that wouldn't be delimited would in some way just be a paradox. And so I guess what I'm trying to suggest is that human life and the cosmos itself, really, the cosmos itself is the result of a kind of paradox that was attempting, I guess, we're not sure, some sort of like a mysterious way. It was trying to resolve the paradox of its own being and we're the, we're the result of it. So I don't think that we're God. I don't think like, you know, each of us are God, but I think, you know, the, the you who can grow your hair, the you who digest your food, the you who could procreate, that is part of the original mystery that goes all the way back to, to the origin of it all. Mm-hmm. You know, um, wow. I, I think life is deeply, deeply paradoxical. It's yes. a kind of Mobius strip. It only opens to itself from the inside. I think this is a different way to say it, that, Although I don't believe in life after death, I think there's a sense in which each person, no matter how long they've lived, have experienced a kind of eternality because they never experienced their own non-being. Their own non-being is somewhat utterly unthinkable. Right. It's, you, you, you can't even imagine it, really, in some ways. But I think, you know when we're born, we're not there in the, you know, we're not in the womb going, I can't wait to be born. It's when we're born, we're not even aware of ourselves there. It's not until we're like, you know, whatever, six months or a little bit later, we slowly at one or two, we come to a self-awareness and realize that we're there. So we were there for some time mm-hmm. before we self-consciousness on the other end, it'll be like, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying. You won't ever get to I'm dead. Right. If you get to I'm dead, you're not yet. And so in that sense, life as a Mobius strip, only opens to itself from the inside. Right. Wow. Is that okay? Yeah, this is great. This is a lot of food for thought. I actually, (laughs) I was a little nervous about this interview because I, my partner thinks it's ridiculous, but sometimes when I go to sleep at night, I think about being dead and like my lack of consciousness and it really freaks me out. So I have to not think about it. And so I've enjoyed the book in part because I'm not good at thinking about my own non-being. It makes me very nervous and stressed out and upset. And this book was... Was was a nice way to think about it, like you guiding me through. Have you ever considered that maybe this isn't the relationship that you think it is, or it could be something different? Your relationship to this idea of death acceptance yeah. um, is has been really eye opening for me personally. Well, that's great. I mean, I I do think you know it's it's comforting in one way. I think for some people it's very anxiety provoking. <laughs> I think if you're if you're a traditional Christian who really does believe in like you cut the world all day long with right. your thought into that person's going to hell, that person's going to heaven, this person's going to hell. And you, you have that in your world and you're just thinking in those terms. My book is really, really cutting against that. But perhaps and worth I, a, worth the struggle, I think, you know, yeah, I'm not a believer, I, I, but I, I want people to have some of that anxiety 
and to ask themselves about how much they really need. And could it be, as I say, some of their greatest riches aren't things that can be personally possessed. Can they learn to open with gratitude for having been invited literally to the banquet of all banquets. That's what life is. This is the banquet of mm-hmm. all banquets. What should be the price for all of this? Well, I, for me, it's death in the end with death acceptance as the ultimate gratuity. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Um, There's a new book out by Jeremy about yoga and gratitude and rhetoric. I'll have to find the link and send it to you. I can't I can't remember his name off the table. Yeah, I should do. know it. I read his stuff all the time. Anyway, um, well- we're running up on the 50-minute mark where I'd like to start to wrap. This has been an amazing conversation. It barely really scratches the surface of the book, but I think we've done justice to the major themes and some of my favorite examples. Do you want to say anything else about the book in terms of takeaways or tell us what you're working on now or future projects? Um, I guess, what would I say? Again, I want to thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been it's great. Really, really, it's, it's really nice to talk with you. Um, I guess you know my, my word for people would be something that – you know, as much as it has been somewhat anxiety provoking to write it, it's really deepened my love of life and mm-hmm. of others. I feel like my life, everyday occurrences, it just bristle with intensity that I couldn't have imagined before. You know, the, I have an aphorism in my communication uncovered book, which is it's called look them in the eyes. And then the aphorism states, you know, when you're dead, you'll never talk to your friends and family again. Always remember this when you talk with them. And I think there's a sense in which every conversation I'm in, somehow it's echoing like an eternality in the now. And so, you know, I would say to people, look, this is not a dress rehearsal. Mm-hmm. You are alive. You're part of a mad, absolute majestic mystery. And, you know, there is good news. The good news doesn't have to be life after death. It's that you've already been right. invited. You're here. Right. How much can you open in love and compassion to everyone else? We're all dying. We're dying together. And people are in the struggle of their lives. We need to like come to terms with this as a fact and then see what we can do moving out from that. You know, I, th- I think this, this for me, a lot of it is the culture is so full of what Frankfurt calls bullshit. I mean, people are just full of shit. And I, to me, this is a fearful nihilism. It's not, you know, there's one sense to talk about nihilism that comes with the fear of the lack of meaningfulness, you know, that maybe comes with the fear of death or the, the sense that life doesn't have an ultimate purpose. But I think a much more insidious nihilism is that people just are, are, they're not being true to what they actually believe. Again, I don't know for certain that there is no life after death, but I'm really, my sense is that there just isn't. And that's okay. It's still wonderful. I still accept life. Well, and they're not mutually exclusive, as you point out in the book. It's like, look, you could maybe hold both beliefs, like on the chance that you're wrong about <laughs> life after yeah. death. That doubt is not is not uh, doesn't undermine your faith. You can you can live as if both possibilities are true because there's nothing about your approach or what I what I, an approach I share to the present and the future that forecloses also a relationship if there is an afterlife, right? You just choose oh, yeah, to live now yeah. differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's it's I'm just saying that people shouldn't be banking on it. Right. And it's 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 introducing a, uh, a a sort of confusion that's preventing people from acting in the the ways that they need to. I mean, each of us are, you know, we're a, a place and moment of everything that's ever been. And w- even people who you don't like, when you can look at them and say, 
my only possible gateway to the divine is through the other and the other space, even the other who I don't like, right. I think we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, I agree. And that that is maybe the ba- even more than death acceptance, I think that might be the biggest challenge that the book presents, but it's a productive one. And I encourage everyone to pick up a copy of How Non-Being Haunts Being on Possibilities, Morality, and Death Acceptance by the Farley Dickinson University Press, by, of course, Corey Anton, who we've been speaking with today. And as a quick note to everyone, um, if you don't want to pick up a copy of the book, maybe your your appetite has been sated or you want to head over to Corey's YouTube channel and just devour everything that's over there, it's always a very cool move to buy a copy of the book, hard copy, to donate to your local library because the budgets are tight. University presses do not make a lot of money, neither do the authors. And the importance for us is really that the ideas get out there. And as you can already see, uh, Corey's ideas are, are worth circulating. And so something to think about as the weather gets nice and the public libraries are opening back up, that uh, it would be great to have a copy of this book on the shelves. And so with that, Corey, do you want to tell us anything else you're working on or what your plans for your next um, project are? I guess I would say I, I'm. it's been really hard to write it, <laughs> since I wrote. I had like postpartum depression. Yeah, kind of I can stuff. imagine. You know, I've written very little since then. I, I do have a collection of, of essays that I'm, I'm compiling and I'm, I'm hoping to get that maybe out in the next couple of years. I may be doing another book. I'm not sure. I mean, this is this will be my fourth uh, single author and like seventh when you include edited and whatnot. So I'm, I'm a little bit spent, but I do have maybe one on, on new media there. Uh, I, I'm just, I would just want to say thank you very much to you, Lee. I really, really appreciate you making time for me and, and the, you know, the ability to just talk about this. And, and I, I really hope that as you say, I would love it if people would be Uh, so thoughtful to get it in their local library. That would just be wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you again for coming to speak with us. It's, It's the pleasure's all mine. Thank you again, listeners, for taking the time to tune in. Stay safe, mask up, and be good to each other. Take care. Bye bye.